Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Hello, this is Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times. My name is John Sonia. And I'm Griselda Mary Brown. And this week's episode is titled How to Be a Better Version of Yourself. So we've made it almost to the middle of February and we'll be revealing whether we've stuck to our New Year's resolutions this year. We're going to be talking about whether there are any apps that can help us with any of them. Are there any apps that can make us more mindful or more efficient? And we've tested out one with varying results. Later on on the show, continuing with the theme of self-improvement, the FT's agony uncle, Sir David Tang, will give us his romantic do's and don'ts for Valentine's Day. Also, we speak to Victor Mallet, the FT's Asian news editor, on the phone to find out how his lunch with the FT interview went with the North Korean defector, Hyun Seo Lee. Three of the biggest resolutions people make are to spend more time on personal well-being, to spend more time with family friends, and the big one, losing weight. But 66% of people who made New Year's resolutions will have already broken them by now, which doesn't really surprise me because whenever I have made them myself, I have inevitably broken them well before mid-February. <laughs> yeah, there's um, there's this thing called the false hope syndrome, which social scientists talk about. And basically, we all think that self-improvement is much easier than it actually is. So we set these like incredibly high standards for ourselves and these very unrealistic goals. And then we're kind of surprised and disappointed when we don't achieve them, when actually... So you said losing weight was one of them. Not um, my own personal. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> um, but losing weight is like a classic New Year's resolution. But actually, probably if that is your New Year's re- resolution, things like overeating or comfort eating might really be tied to underlying emotional issues. And false hope syndrome is all about the fact that those underlying issues are quite difficult to tackle, and you can't just come the first of January just get rid of them and, and continue on your thin new life. Yeah, self-transformation is definitely not easy. So when I came across this app called Pavlock, it made me laugh quite a lot, actually. I haven't bought one. They're quite expensive. I just read it in some article and then went onto the website and got hooked on all the silly videos on there. So it's called Pavlock and it's this kind of watch. And the advert says that 40% of our lives are spent in habit. Most of that time is wasted. It's not about trying harder, but to replace bad habits with habits of excellence. And basically this watch, when you don't stick to your New Year's resolution, Mm -hmm. so let's say you have an alarm set for 6am and it goes off. And if you hit snooze twice in a row, you actually get an electric shock. Well, that's quite extreme. (laughs) Yeah, this isn't like, you know, forget your nice mindfulness apps. This is kind of like... Wearable tech strikes back. Yeah, and it's crazy. And it says says in the promotional video, each surge of voltage trains your brain and weakens the neuroconnection until the bad habit is severed. So... Uh, I'm not too tempted to try this one. I don't think I'll be rushing out to buy one of those. No, I know, but so what were your New Year's resolutions? And, you know, maybe the Pavlock could help you, Salda. <laughs> I think I might need one of those. Okay, so so running more often was, was one of my New Year's resolutions. Some friends of mine are all going to do a half marathon in March, and I signed up to that. I actually downloaded an app called Strava, which is very popular. Lots of people use it for, like, cycling. cycling and, one, yeah. yeah, but you can also use it for running. 
I have to say it does make me feel a little bit stressed actually because it sort of like gives you all of this information like how many calories how many other people are running around the park much faster than you how you didn't increase your pace on your third mile yeah a lot of these apps that kind of track our lives it's it's quite a punishing type of culture there's this whole movement about the quantified self and life logging and it's a kind of obsession we have with tracking, you know, like counting our steps, measuring our heart rate, measuring our yeah. s- sleep cycles, this craving for data about ourselves, which is kind of interesting. And I, I can see why people want that. And I, I do definitely feel that myself. I mean, as soon as I log on to Strava, I do look at all that data. I now have a sleep cycle app, which I look at. And every morning I wake up and I immediately measure like how much of what percentage of my night was spent in deep sleep. I didn't need to know how much of the night I spent in deep sleep. It doesn't mean I've slept any better. Yeah, so, uh, well, yeah, a few weeks ago, you sent me a screen grab of your sleep app saying, I don't have a clue what this means. (laughs) No, no, I don't have a clue what it means. (laughs) And I also don't know how true it is. But, you know, are these apps you're using, are they helping you achieve your New Year's resolutions? Or have you broken them all like every year? (laughs) <laughs> well, so Strava has helped me a bit, but I think actually the thing that's helped me with running is the fact that my friends are doing it as well. There are other things that I've signed up to. There's something called Shine Text, which is kind of confidence boosting texts. It's a service that sends you these little mini messages every morning and they're supposed to sort of set you up for the day and make you feel great. I mean, actually, <laughs> they're fairly ridiculous. I'll read you the one that I was sent this morning. It says... The emotional toll of being disappointed is real and means we are brave enough to put our all into something. Today, when faced with opposition, celebrate that you put yourself out there. You will always bounce back, Griselda. <laughs> I mean, it's just too much. I can't, I can't be doing with that every morning. Okay, well, I don't use too many self, <laughs> self-help apps, but I can agree that the emotional toll of being disappointed is very great and maybe I should therefore make more resolutions. I guess my only resolutions, we were talking about this earlier, have been to spend less time on my phone. Was that your main New Year's resolution? I'm not sure it was a New Year's resolution, it's just something people always tell me, you know, I'll be at dinner with someone and I'll be on my phone and they'll say, John, That's can so you rude. get off? Yeah. Uh, and this is the problem I have with lots of kind of self-help type apps is I find them so unrealistic when you bring them into your real everyday environment in life like so Griselda you we decided to both use this app called Headspace right yeah which is at like the number one kind of mindfulness meditation app. yeah it's been downloaded over 10 million times the company's valued at 250 million dollars yeah for anyone who doesn't know this app it is a free app that you can then subscribe to and it gives you guided meditations and you get um, a little notification every day and it gives you a 10 minute meditation so John, you tried some of these, right? Yeah, I got. I found the texts really annoying. Um, <laughs> when I sent you that nudge to do some mindfulness, you didn't really appreciate it either, no, I got judging a, by your response. <laughs> I got a text from John on Sunday morning saying, time to get some headspace. I was like, well, I'm yeah, not going to so, say what I replied. <laughs> so, and this is the thing I have with like, you know, running apps. I mean, I find them quite intrusive, but maybe that's just me. I still haven't found the perfect app to help me become a better version of myself. And Griselda, I'm sensing you haven't quite found that app either. Not quite, but the search continues. So we've invited two of our colleagues onto the pod today to help us with some of these questions, matters of tech and self-improvement. The writer and broadcaster Tim Harford is joining us. He writes a weekly column in the FT Weekend magazine called The Undercover Economist. And also with us is Esther Bintliff, Deputy Editor of the magazine. Esther and Tim, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So, Tim, what were your New Year's resolutions? 
I'm trying to remember them now uh, because I always write them down and then forget them. Uh, so <laughs> I have them here in front of me. If you okay, need. so <laughs> in that case, why did you ask me? You t- okay, you tell me, John. What are so my New Year's resolutions? Your resolutions were discussed? to have more exercise, and you yep. said yes. You were achieving that New Year's mm-hmm. resolution. More board games with your children. That's easy. Yeah, and I'm doing that. Use social media less. Uh, yes, I now no longer read anything anybody says on Twitter. Although I still shout on Twitter like anybody else. Oh, I'm the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> and the one you said you were failing miserably, write more personal letters. Yeah, I haven't written any. Apart from my thank you letters, I haven't written any. What about um, your other resolutions? Have you used tech in any way? Any apps? or? I try and use tech if it's suitable for the challenge at hand, but it often isn't. So with Twitter, I just found that over the Christmas holidays, I was just being bothered by you know just mean tweets you know the usual thing mean tweets not that i particularly suffer from people telling me i'm an idiot on twitter any more than anybody else does but they were they were interrupting my family time i just thought i don't need to read this stuff so at first i just said right i'm not going to read the tweet stream and then i realized hang on you can configure twitter so it doesn't actually show you any of the rude things that anybody is saying about you or any of the nice things that anyone's or anything anybody is saying about you you just (laughs) disable that column on on an app like TweetDeck. I I can't say I've missed it. Esther, Tim mentioned kind of family life and tech intruding on family life. You edited a piece and published it recently in the magazine by a writer called Hattie Garlick called The Madness of Mindfulness. Mm. Um, It had this great opening. There can be few things in life less zen than standing ankle deep in Lego shouting, mummy needs three more minutes to be mindful right now. Yeah, can you tell us a bit about this piece and whether it whether it resonated with you personally? Yeah, it completely resonated with me. I have a two year old son, and that sense of kind of being overwhelmed sometimes by tasks and by the demands on your time from lots of different directions that she writes about was very familiar to me, definitely. And are there any ways in which tech or apps have helped with this kind of balance of of motherhood and parenting and the demands of a very full-time job? When when I was still on maternity leave, our son, just after he was born, he um, lost a lot of weight in the first week and uh, we had to go back to hospital. It was really stressful. And one of the things that they asked us to do was to keep a very, very detailed record of every time he fed and for how many minutes and when he was sleeping and when we were changing his nappy we had to do it for about a month or six weeks literally every two to three hours keeping a very detailed diary and I just have this memory of walking around with sheaves of A4 line paper <laughs> that I'd written feverishly at like 3.23 in the morning <laughs> feed starts you know five minutes later feed stop then five minutes later feed starts again I mean it was just kind of crazy and it added a lot of stress to what was already quite a difficult time and about two weeks in a friend said to me that she was using an app called um, Feed Baby. And it was so simple, I mean, so obvious in retrospect, but all you needed to do was tap the phone when you started the feed and then tap the phone when it finished, tap the phone when you went to sleep, you know. It was actually brilliant and it really, really took a burden off us. That was an example of where tech actually did make a big difference. Yeah, and it seems like that there's tech that kind of seamlessly integrates into your life mm. like that and tech which is the Hattie Garlic example which is an alarm goes off on your phone and says get some headspace and you, it's a real interruption. Yeah, so, uh, Tim you touched on this at the beginning and this type of tech clearly didn't suit Hattie's needs and you were saying you do use tech when you know it suits the task at hand. Yes but I mean, there is something magnificently self-defeating about a mindfulness app given I think that the, the main <laughs> obstacle to mindfulness that most of us find 
is our phones. This idea of how apps can improve your life, you've written about happynomics or the economics of subjective well-being and kind of behavioural economics. Do you think there are do you think there are ways we can change our behaviour, not necessarily through tech, although there are sort of apps that can prompt this, that can make us happier, the kind of people that we want to be at the beginning of the year when we're making our New Year's resolutions? I think there is some interesting work on really running with the grain of human nature. There's a a book coming out, funnily enough, from two people who work in the the nudge unit, the behavioural insight team that used to advise David Cameron when he was prime minister. They've written about how to get more exercise, how how to drink less, using principles of behavioural economics. And often it's about, for example, thinking about contingencies. So when you make the resolution, then think to yourself, okay, imagine that in six weeks' time I have broken this resolution what are the scenarios in which that would happen? How can I see that not working out? And then if you start thinking about how you're likely to break your resolution in advance, then you can start going, well, I guess my resolution is to quit smoking. And I can imagine that I'm going to start smoking on Tuesday when I see my friend who smokes. You can start taking preparations. Or another thing related is context, to try and change the context. So to put your running shoes and your lycra by the door so <laughs> that, so that you see it um, <laughs> or if you're going to do some weights put the weights somewhere where you're going to see them mm. it is behavioural science which I, I guess say, is the next seems, best thing <laughs> it seems quite um, simple in a way these kind of nudge tactics so we don't you know often there's an app for that but actually maybe we don't need apps for some of these things I think that when you start to think about the limits of what technology can do at the moment it often fails in very predictable ways so an, an interesting example Google Goals And the idea of Google Goals is you tell Google Calendar, I want to work out with weights four times a week, say. And Google Calendar knows what you're doing. And so and what it will do is it will suggest times to to work out. So I tried this. I thought, well, okay, give it a go. The promise is it will learn whenever I postpone. It's going to install things in my calendar and say, work out with weights now. And then if I say, oh, no, no, now's not a good time, it'll learn and blah, blah, blah didn't work at all completely disastrous <laughs> and actually completely disastrous in a very predictable way so what would happen for example this morning i got out of bed i went to oxford railway station i caught the eight o'clock train to paddington i arrived at paddington at nine o'clock and that's in the diary and the first appointment of the day was ten thirty here talking to you guys so google goals would go hmm, there's a 90 minute gap between arriving at paddington station and doing a podcast at the financial times why not work out with weights? <laughs> and, and this yeah. is exactly what it's the tube. I would, uh, yeah, I would, well, actually, I cycle. But, um, so I, I would arrive in Paddington Station, I'd be unfolding my bike and setting it all up, and my phone would ping, and it would say, good time to get that weight session into it. <laughs> and, and you realise, actually, that's, that's so obvious. There's so much context that the app can't have. The app needs to be so much smarter. I mean, you can see it might come. It's sort of intrusive, but not quite smart enough, which is almost... It's not it's, remote. It's, bad, it's not remotely smart It's not even close. And the other thing is that you know, at times, it's kind of guilt-inducing. I mean, what Hattie writes about, where she was finally getting a chance to log into one of these mindfulness apps, you would kind of hide in the bathroom and lock the door, <laughs> and it would say, "Oh, we haven't seen you in a while." Um, in a slightly passive-aggressive, having a dig at her over time, that just kind of really made her feel like she was failing at something. Mm. So that rather than bringing calm and a sense of well-being to her life, it was actually making her feel stressed. Well, what I would really like to see, and maybe some smart people in Silicon Valley are doing this, uh, I would like to see regular apps 
designed more with these sorts of considerations in mind. So, for example, really simple one. I check my email too often on my phone. It's just a habit. And I'm not too worried about it, but it would be great if I just did it a little bit less, particularly in the evenings. So it would be nice if I could just get it to say, are you sure, Tim? Mm. You checked me 90 seconds ago. Yeah. You really want to check again? <laughs> yeah. Um, just something like that. Um, that could quickly become quite infuriating at well, the same could, time. Well, it could, but, you know, I mean... <laughs> yes, I am sure. I, I feel that there, there must be a way to do it. Or another yeah. thing. Actually, one thing I do on my phone is it goes on silent automatically after 10 p.m. Mm. until 7 a.m. It would be great to be able to do that with certain other apps, Facebook, Twitter, yeah. And that would contribute a lot more to mindfulness yeah. than a mindfulness app. Mm. It's interesting how a lot of these things are actually about kind of limiting accessibility and taking tech out of our hands and kind of away from us and allowing us space from those things. Of course, that's not what the technology wants. Tim Wu has an interesting book called The Attention Merchants. He's basically tracking the history of, of advertising. And more and more what's on our phone, the Facebook, Twitter, Google... It's trying to attract our attention so that it can sell our attention to other people. That's why all these services are free. This is well known, but I think we don't think of it often enough. Your phone doesn't quite work for you. Your phone <laughs> is actually working for Facebook and selling your attention to advertisers. And no, no wonder it doesn't quite work with the grain of what we want. Esther, Tim and Griselda, how many unread emails do you have in your work email accounts at the moment? Oh, my goodness. I don't even keep track. I mean, it's in the tens of thousands. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, I obsessively read all of them and delete them, and it takes up a huge portion of my day. So you're on zero. Which is probably why Esther's more productive than I am. <laughs> I spend my life deleting emails. <laughs> I think I was on three in my inbox when I came here, but they were all red. They were all red. <laughs> so zero. Oh, wow. Oh, God. I'm in a couple thousand, which isn't... I think that's so we're quite split down the middle here. But I think the interesting thing is we're all grown ups, right? We all get, we all have proper jobs, and we all get stuff done. So there's no, there is no right or wrong way to do this. I think. So what kind of um, apps can we use for better office productivity? I love email. I absolutely love email, and I think that it's the the centre for productivity for me. What I've noticed is that you need an organisational system that's kind of rough and ready. It needs to be really easy to use. You need to basically get a sense of where your stuff is, like piles of paper on the desk. Piles of paper on the desk are actually incredibly functional. Um, and that I've got psychological research to back that one up. You're looking <laughs> sceptical, John, but there's, I, can, I can cite all the research on that. Piles of paper work. So what's the equivalent of piles of paper in, for example, Gmail? And it turns out that Gmail has um, a function called multiple inboxes, where you can set up several inboxes and they, they operate all at once. You can see them all at the same time. They're just stacked one above another. The other app that I use a lot is a very simple, popular to-do app called Remember the Milk. And the nice thing about that is it synchronizes with Gmail. So there's a Remember the Milk sidebar. So when you're looking at Gmail, you've got your tasks down one side. But remember the milk, it's got some nice functions and you know priorities and dates and contexts and locations and smart lists and a whole bunch of stuff I don't use. But these um kind of remember to do things apps can be quite smart. I've heard of ones where if you put milk on remember the milk and you're walking past the supermarket, it will ping up saying remember the milk. Which uh, I find yeah. is kind of I mean, I, maybe that's very helpful for some people. For me, it's slightly creepy. Every time I pass a supermarket, I don't want to be reminded of all the shopping I have to do and how little is in my fridge. Yeah, I think in an ideal world, that 
would work, but I've never tried to make that one. <laughs> I mean, I think the interesting things, a lot of this stuff comes to a book written by um, David Allen called Getting Things Done. It, it's an interesting system. It's got a huge following. And the fundamental principle of getting things done is every single thing you need to do, you need to be quite specific about exactly what it is. So what is actually the next action? And you need to write it down somewhere that you actually trust you will look at that. Mm. A lot of the different apps, the different systems, are all basically trying to implement that fundamental principle, which is be specific and write it down. We all have far too many things to do, all of us. The question is, do you feel in control of all the unmanageable things you have to do, or do you feel overwhelmed? Okay, something very different coming up for you listeners this week. Forget Trump, forget politics, forget anything going on in your life. The big event of next week is, of course... Valentine's Day. Yep, on the 14th. (laughs) Some people love Valentine's Day, some people hate it. And we invited the FT's agony uncle, Sir David Tang, into the studio to give us his etiquette tips. What should you do on Valentine's Day? Yeah, and it's really something no one wants to get wrong. So I guess everyone's (laughs) going to be listening super, super carefully right now. Should we celebrate Valentine's Day? The point about love is that there is a distinction between romance, which is in a mind, and sentimentality, which requires checked tablecloths, stupid roses, and wine and champagne and so forth. I have always said to people that if you really want a romantic dinner, don't go to a French bistro or brasserie. Go to a railway station, for example, and there's a very good pasty shop in Paddington, for example. On one occasion, on Valentine's Day, I took a girlfriend and we sat on a bench and had a couple of Cornish pasty and looked at the world, see this receptacle of incredible travellers, some of whom are sad, uh, some of whom are happy. And there's something romantic about a railway station. And it's a poor man's version of sitting at a coffee shop by the roadside of Champs-Élysées or somewhere in Paris. But I think more real. Now, what's the biggest no-no? I think the biggest no-no is to send a hundred roses. I mean, there are some incredibly vulgar and rich people who would send a hundred or two hundred roses. Roses usually are twice as expensive on Valentine's Day. So the biggest no-no is to send flowers, especially roses. I mean, the only one worse thing is to send gladioli, which is which is which is horrible, and carnation, which is extremely common. Uh, So no flowers. Uh, Chocolates? I don't think so. I think chocolates always melt, and it's so pedestrian. Lazy underwear? Well, I gather that men go off to buy underwear, lingerie, uh, more than women in lingerie shops. I have no idea what I would buy.
these gifts are much better to be totally forgotten. Go back to romance. No need for material sentimentality. Do you think one could find love online? No, because love can never be sought. What should you give if you're on a tight budget or the other scale have money to burn? Now, if you're on a tight budget, I think you learn up a couple of lines of poetry. Nowadays, it's very impressive to be able to blurt out uh, a few lines, if you can make a sonnet even better, and uh, impress the girl. If I had all the money in the world, I would not try to impress anybody with a place. I would try to impress them with a person. If Trump or uh, Putin appeared in front of your girl on Valentine's Day, I think she would not forget it. And that's the point, is that you've got to have a memorable date. I mean, not Elton John. I mean, he's got to be somebody incredibly grand. And it's got to be a president, or at least an ex-president, or an ex-pope. Although I don't think you'll get Benedict as he's retired. But um, that would be the ultimate catch. I did produce the Pope once uh, to a girl and surprised her. And I have to say she was quite impressed. What romantic advice would you give your younger self? I think that if I were younger, I would try to have as many girlfriends as I can on Valentine's Day. You know, you take somebody out for breakfast and then you take somebody out for elevenses and lunch and tea and dinner and perhaps a nightcap and tell each one of them that it's much better to have a meeting, not necessarily dinner, although in the case of dinner, you don't have to explain, but then you manage to have four or five lovers or pretended lovers on the same day. Hey, Victor, it's John. Yes, hi. Hey, so you've just had lunch with the defector-turn-human rights activist, Hyun Seo Lee. Why, why did you pitch her? Why is she so remarkable? I think she's, a, she's a, an extraordinary woman. She's, she's quite small, but she's very dynamic. She's like a sort of a, a miniature whirlwind when she, she comes into the room. And she really has become the voice of uh, North Korea, in a sense. Uh, you know, she's, she's often out there in public uh, talking about the people who've escaped, talking about the situation inside North Korea, and above all about the fate of the North Koreans who end up in China, uh, either as sex slaves or as brides of farmers, uh, and who then try to escape to the West or to South Korea. So she's really become, uh, you know, probably the most prominent spokesperson for, for all these unrepresented people. 
So she's in her 30s now, but she actually escaped when she was in her teens. That's right. She was 17 when she crossed the frozen Yalu River from her home and walked into China. She wasn't really expecting to, to stay, but she, she ended up stuck there, really, and went to see some relatives and then ended up in hiding in China under a series of assumed names and assumed identities for, for a decade uh, before she then finally escaped uh, fully under a false uh, identity, another false identity, to South Korea, where she now lives. And like so many other defectors, she thought North Korea was kind of the best place on the planet when she was growing up, didn't she? I think that's right. I mean, one of the, one of the, the difficulties for all the North Koreans who escape is it really is the most bizarrely isolated society in the world, even even now with, with some mobile phones available in the towns on the border. You know, there is still no internet normally available for ordinary people living around the country. People are educated from birth to believe certain things. And, and even when they can see with their own eyes that it is not the case that North Korea is the greatest country in the world because they can see, for example, they can look over into China and see that it's a much wealthier place. They find it very hard, uh, having been brought up with, with these views, you know, that the Kim family, uh, currently Kim Jong-un, you know, th- these are the saviors of the country, that North Korea is the most prosperous and wonderful country on earth. It's very hard for them to realize when they move overseas that actually South Korea is many times more prosperous, even though they started off more or less as economic equals at the end of the Korean War in the 1950s. And, and, and now they've completely diverged. And they also have to learn that Americans, you know, are not uh, necessarily the scum of the earth or, or cockroaches. You know, they, they are taught these extraordinarily vituperative beliefs about Westerners that they have to uh, essentially cancel out when they move to the West. And she married Ameri- an American, didn't she? So that's kind of put paid to that. She did. And, and her family were, were sort of shocked because although they'd, they'd recently moved to the West or to South Korea themselves, they they, they kind of still had this embedded belief that, you know, Americans were, were basically filth and were cruel, nasty people, even when they could see with their own eyes that it wasn't necessarily the case. Apparently, one of the most difficult beliefs to eradicate is that what people are taught in Pyongyang and other North Korean cities is that the war was started by the Americans and the South Koreans, the war in the 1950s, when in fact, of course, it was started by North Korea itself. And that is, is something that is very hard for people to understand. Yeah. Um, it, given the level of propaganda that starts from, from basically from birth. Mm. And you had lunch um, in a restaurant in Seoul. How was that? That was great. Uh, you know, traditional Korean food is extremely, uh, I don't know if you've ever tried it, but it's, uh, it's very tasty, very interesting if you're not familiar with it. Uh, you know, one of the dishes we had was some rather delicious raw crab that's been marinated in the restaurant's secret sauce. We had various other uh, exotic dishes with sesame and noodles and uh, fish and specially prepared uh, meat. Korean food is really extremely tasty and, and, and well worth trying if you haven't tried it. And of course, one of the things that uh, exiles or, or refugees uh, or defectors from North Korea find is that um, there's a sort of shocking abundance of food in South Korea and, and of course, in America as well. That is simply not the case in, uh, in North Korea. So at one point in, in the middle of our dinner, she, she suddenly uh, sh- you know, took, took up her cell phone and, and her smartphone and showed me this picture of a cat. And I said, well, it's a cat. And she said, yeah, that cat is my friend's cat in New York. And the cat uh, eats sushi. And I said, 
that seems bizarre. And she said, yeah, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not criticizing the cat and I'm not criticizing the owner. But you have to understand the bizarre contrast between a cat that eats expensive sushi and the fact that people in North Korea have been starving for want of a bowl of simple rice, you know, and, and it's just it's almost impossible to imagine those contrasts. I mean, she herself saw people dying of hunger on the streets of her hometown, close to the border with China, where there was abundance of everything. And I think very few uh, North Koreans escape trauma, especially if they lived through those famine years, uh, you know, around the late uh, late 2000s. It was a very, very difficult time. Okay, well, I look forward to Kat's sushi and reading more about her story. Um, Thanks a lot, Victor. David Tang's Agony Uncle column appears weekly in the House and Home section of FT Weekend, and his new book, Rules for Modern Life, is published by Penguin. He'll be speaking at the Oxford Literary Festival on April 1st. You can read Victor Mallet's Lunch with the FT and Hattie Garlick's piece on the madness of mindfulness online at FT Weekend. Tim Harford's weekly column, The Undercover Economist, is in the FT magazine, and his new book is titled Messy, How to Be Creative and Resilient in a Tidy-Minded World. Next week, we're going to be discussing the cultural legacy of Lena Dunham's hit TV show, Girls, as the latest and final series starts airing. Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Griselda Murray-Brown and John Sunya. Our music is composed and produced by Fatum. Feel free to get in touch with us, comment, query, question or review. You can find us on Twitter or email us at everythingelseatft.com. You can subscribe to Everything Else at all the usual places, including iTunes as well as at ft.com slash everythingelse.